um, his faith, which we know comes from you. Uh, I pray that you would continue to sustain that, that you would help him in his um, challenges and trials, and thank you for his patience. Uh, in the hospital, I do pray that the Rojo cushion would be a blessing, and um, pray, Father, that you would um, you would uh, just either bring him back to some health where he can enjoy life here for some time more, or you would, in your mercy and in your time, take him to be with yourself. But, but either way, Lord, we, we submit our hearts to you and ask that you would be merciful and gracious. And I do pray for the, his children who have already lost their mom and uh, just pray for your hand of mercy upon Ed and, and on them. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay. Numbers chapter 6. Remember that Numbers is supplemental to the book of Leviticus and Exodus and Genesis, but particularly Leviticus. And so there's a lot of the Levitical laws that are just assumed in Numbers. Um, and, and so it's sometimes it's, you're kind of in Numbers, you're, you're especially early on going like, what is really happening here? Well, now we've come to number six, which is the, the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow. And I think if you're going to understand the Nazarite vow, you have to again go, all of Israel, holy, the, uh, the Levites, I'll just say, holy, holy. <laughs> I won't say holy, 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 because only God's that. But, um, but they're, they're like special, right? They're, they're extra holy. And so that leaves the question on if you are a person here and you have a desire to, to have a, a higher level of holiness as an expression of thankfulness to God, maybe as a... Uh, Maybe a, a prayer. Um, uh, you just thankfulness, consecration. Maybe you're going through a difficult time, whatever. But is is there a pathway for you as an as someone who's not a Levite to, in a sense, sanctify yourself before God at a deeper level? That's what the Nazarite vow is all about. Um, <clears throat> Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So even though that God has um, a specific tribe who are priests, the Old Testament makes mention that really the whole nation is a kingdom of priests. And of course, we know that in the New Testament, right? It says that same thing, that you are a kingdom of priests. In First Peter, maybe. Um, so, so God is implanting this idea. There, there are reasons for having the Levites themselves be the holy portion, but really, God wants all of his people to, to know the, the concept that you are really 
uh, devoted and set apart and sanctified and holy before God. So that's really what the Nazarite vow is about. Um, now, it is, as we're going to see here, it is a temporary Uh, there's only a period of time that this occurs. It's not just an ongoing uh, aspect, although we're going to make allusion to talk about uh, the people who um, had lifelong Nazarite vows, right? Uh, who do you think of? Samson, Samson of course, yeah. And, and it seems that uh, the, the prophet Nathan is like this too because uh, Hannah, um, or Samuel, excuse me, is that right? Which one? Who was Hannah's son that she dedicates to the Lord? Samuel. Samuel. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, so it does seem like these are, those are exceptions, like lifelong Nazarite kind of vows. Uh, but in here, we're going to see that it was typical to be a temporary one. So let's go ahead and read um, the first 21 verses. And, uh, oh, we'll start, we'll, we'll just do this these four people across the front here. So uh, if you'll read uh, five verses, you know, start with Gary, and then just five verses each, we'll get through verses 1 through 21. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may wait a minute, wait a minute. Where are you? Oh, I'm in <laughs> I'm thinking, wait a minute, going over to the land, that sounds like Deuteronomy. <laughs> Try this again. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, nor even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he is holy to the Lord. And if any man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the priest shall offer one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering, and make atonement for him, because he sinned by reason of the dead body, and he shall consecrate his head the same day, I'll keep going, <laughs> and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation, and bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering, but the previous period shall be void, because his separation was defiled. 
And this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish, blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, and unleavened waste wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering, and their drink offering. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord, and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace, offering to the Lord, with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall offer also its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire that is in the sanct in the that is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled, and one unleavened loaf out of the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite. But if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do an addition to the law of the Nazarite. Okay, very good. Thank you, everyone. So first off, um, Nazarite is a, is not a, it's not like it's an unknown name, but there's not really any explanation of the name. So just, I remember I used to, you know, you think, oh, Jesus is from Nazareth. I, there's not, just because it sounds the same, sounds similar, it's not, not the same thing. And uh, he's a Nazarene, but that's not the same thing as saying he's a Nazarite. Now, I do think that there are, parallels, I do think Jesus was uh, the perfect Nazarite, so I think that that's true. Uh, but uh, the name itself is uh, it's just no explanation to us in Scripture. Some people think it, uh, assume that it means set apart, but I, I don't know. If somebody were to find um, uh, substantial evidence for some something to do with that, then I would I put it in my notes, but I, I haven't found any in all the commentaries that I've read. So uh, there's not really any reason that you have to take a Nazarite vow except for general devotion or a personal desire for consecration. You just like, I just want to give myself more fully to God. I think that is a, if there's nothing else in your, um, that you get out of the Nazarite vow, just know that God makes a, uh, a, a special allowance for that. He wants that out of his people. You don't just say, well, this is kind of typical, this is the Christian life. If you want to say, ah, I want to express my devotion to you, um, that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. Yes, it's not a fasting. Nope, has, the fasting would be 
The reason for fasting is usually because of great calamity, great uh, suffering, great trial, and you, you're, you're fasting as a means of humbling yourself under that trial so that you are pleading for God to get you out of the trial, but you're also humbly submitting yourself to God in the trial. So that's kind of the, if I were not saying those are the only reasons to fast, but that was um, a, a big, so like if the, the people of God are going into exile, you know, that would be a time of fasting that they would do um, to uh, acknowledge their submission to God and pleading for him for deliverance. But that's not really, more of the Nazarite vow is, I'm thankful to God, maybe for his blessing, and I'm crying out to him. I want to, in devotion, offer myself more fully to him. And I just, I, I just, I think it's very healthy for us to realize that as a Christian, you will have, you know, your kind of your ongoing obedience, but if there's a season in your life where you're like, Lord, I want to give up myself all to you, that's a, God actually makes provision for that in the Old Testament. It's a good thing. So um, also notice um, who may take a Nazarite vow. Men and women, right? It's not just a, the, the man side of it. So I would assume that maybe you could even be a, a woman among the Levites, you hadn't gone through all the extra cleansing, you know, holiness. You could, again, yourself take this vow if you wanted to. So uh, there are some restrictions placed upon the person. What are those restrictions? I've kind of written some of these down here as reminders as you were reading it, but tell me what you have there. Yep, you got hair. That's a big issue. Yeah, so the grapes, even the seeds and the skins, right? So it has, it's, you, when you first start thinking about wine, you're just thinking, yeah, we knew alcohol was bad in the first place, so now if you want to be really holy, don't drink alcohol. But it's, it's much more than that, isn't it? Any strong drink, vinegar, grapes of any kind, the seeds are the skins of the grapes. I mean, it's like it's really anything having to do with that. Um, yeah, even if they're dried, right, so that's... So that's a big thing. And then what's the third restriction? Yes, that's the... Well, that I think is the reason why this Nazarite vow is in this place in Scripture, because it is... um, Remember, they're dealing with... uh, In the last chapter, there were all these real situations that could cause you to be unclean and have to be put out of the camp. Well, now you have a situation where you've taken this vow and, and not through a personal act, like a choice, have you gone up to a dead body, but it's just accidental, right? It's just an accidental occurrence, you know, um, that you've, you've been associated with a dead body, you know? And so that's, that's the kind of what's happening, um, as we, just to kind of, I don't want to make a comment about this yet. I just want you to kind of have it in your mind. Do you remember in the New Testament where Jesus says, uh, let the dead bury their own dead? And a lot of times we take that as like a, like a universal thing. Oh, love Jesus, forget your parents, you know. <laughs> that's, I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's much more like this Nazarite vow. Jesus is on his way to his death. He, this, he's set apart. The people who are following him are set apart. And, um, and he's just like, don't even worry about them right now. This is the most important thing at this moment. So, um, and they might have been using their 
need to bury their dead as an excuse to not follow him. But I think it, this is probably a little more uh, in line with what's happening than just don't ever take care of your aging parents. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're consecrated heads. Yes, so I think that the um, hair is confusing to me. It really, you know, what's what's going on in that. Now, to shave your hair completely was certainly a sign of shame, Um, but um, but I think it was a very distinctive way that you would know if somebody was under a Nazarite vow. It was very clear, so everyone would know that. So. You know, people would probably have their hair at a certain length. You know, it might be much longer than ours or whatever. But if you let your hair grow out, you're like, oh, he's taking a Nazarite vow. That's a good question. <laughs> That's a great question. I don't know about that. <laughs> um, uh, she didn't shave her legs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I doubt any of them shaved their legs at that time, but... Um, I wish I had more on for you on that. I don't. I just think that it was a um, a way of uh, demonstration that this is this is the vow that I'm taking. And then, if you you'll see in this that if you if you do come in contact with the dead body, you're going to have to you have to start the whole process over again. So you you wouldn't just say, okay, I do the rite of cleansing. Uh, and then uh, keep going, you have to reshave your head and start all over with a new time. And so maybe it was a way of even distinguishing how long you are keeping the vow. I, I don't know. And I don't know, Lori, if the woman might shave her head as well at the beginning of the vow, you know. Uh, so that would have been clear to everyone that well, you've I done. I don't think they shaved unless... Unless they touched the dead yeah. body. Yeah. I mean... No, that's what I'm saying. If you if you touch a dead body in the midst of the vow, then you have to shave, which would then be an indication to everyone that you're starting over again. Whether or not they had to do that at the very beginning, I don't know. It doesn't say it, but it's possible. What's verse 18? Well, that would be, but that would be at the end of his vow. So, like, I think that's at the end. So... Like when you're when you finish your vow, you have to do all these. Um, uh oh, okay. So you got If you get out of here at the beginning, I, I trust you guys. Uh, yeah, at the time, yeah. I know at the. <laughs> I know at the time that he touched his body, he's supposed to shave himself and start all over. I also know at the end of his vow, he's supposed to shave or at least cut his hair. And, and that's a sign that the vow's over. Uh, whether or not you shaved at the very beginning can make sense to me, but it's not explicit in the text, as far as I understand. Shaved her head at the end also. Right, that's what I'm saying. It, it, yeah, so... Um, now, the, there's steps of purification if you have accidentally touched this body... And remind you, this makes no sense if it's, if it's all about sin. It's not, not about sin necessarily. It's both, um, it could be about sin, the actual committing of sin, but it's also about the consequences of sin, which is the curse. 
And again, death is a, a connection to the curse, and we've already said that God doesn't want in his holy of holies to be connected with the curse, because that's just not who he is, which is uh, amazing. It makes it all the more amazing why in the New Testament Jesus actually goes into the grave. Like he actually, when he dies, goes into the tomb. Like he shares the tomb with us, you know, is, is pretty amazing because a holy God would not do those things. He's separate from that, and yet he does come in. So, um, uh, yeah, go ahead, Deb. What, didn't it make him weak what, to have his hair cut? Yeah, and I, I would just say that the whole issue with Samson has other supernatural, unique situations put into it. Um, I don't think that the, um, the typical Nazarite, when he took his vow, became like, like Popeye and got strong, you know. So there's extra things going on with Samson is all I'm saying. Um, yeah. yeah. But Mike, yes. is there any parallel or disused in justification for the celibacy vow throughout history? So wanting to be more holy or Oh yeah, we, I think I think in general there's always this um you talking about the catholic view of of uh restraint from sex uh yeah. being a yeah, I mean that's the kind of the maybe the idea that you would become more holy. It's interesting that God doesn't use that in his prescribed uh way of um dedicating yourself to the Lord. So Set apart. So that would explain a lot if that's in fact what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's no question that this, I, I'm not, if that's true, Nazareth actually does mean set apart. Um, but the, no, no question that that's what's happening here. You're basically saying, I want a higher level of dedication for a period of time. That is absolutely true. So um, there are four steps for purification. The, you shave your head. You offer some doves or pigeons, uh, and uh, it's funny. It says to make atonement because he has sinned. Right? He hasn't. He hasn't. Not in the way we think of sin, right? I mean, he didn't do anything. He woke up and his wife was dead, or you know, whatever. He didn't. He didn't actually do anything. But that's. It's still uh, to make atonement for that. Uh, you, there's a. Um, you consecrate your head in rededication, and you offer a lamb as a guilt offering uh, to the Lord. And then at the completion of the ceremonies, uh, there are um, a burnt offering, a sin offering, and a peace offering, and a grain offering. All those are there. Now you won't, again, there's no explanation of what these offerings are, what their purposes are, um, anything of that nature, because it's all explained in Leviticus. Well, it's not really explained in Leviticus. It's, it's, <laughs> I wish that there was like a real explanation of all the meanings and stuff uh, of what's going on. But let me do this. I went and pulled my, my uh, notes from Leviticus, and I wanted to at least give you some some ideas. So the the burnt offering, anybody want to take a guess on what the burnt offering is? Like what's its purpose? No, I want to just you could just take a stab. Yeah. 
I have to go back. I have to go back. The burnt offering was one that was, that was called a burnt offering because it was completely burned up on the altar. So there's nothing left of it. You do, it's like taking a, your, um, Jim uh, loves to grill out. It's like leaving it on the grill until it's gone. <laughs> this is the burnt offering. Um, and the burnt offering, I'm just reading here. This is by a guy named Wayne Stiles, and I think he's done a good job. The burnt offering teaches that God is pleased to accept anyone who comes to him through his prescribed sacrifice. The whole animal was consumed on the altar, and it atoned for the worshiper's sin. It satisfied God's wrath against sin and made fellowship between, uh, possible between a holy God and a sinful person. So the burnt offering is very, it's like foundational to all the other offerings. It's that, it's that important. Uh, the grain offering, which is also one that's a, a part of this, uh, it is, uh, will you guys take a guess on the grain offering? It's like food, right? Um, what might be the purpose? It, the grain offering often accompanies the burnt offering. So any idea why you might have a grain offering? Thankfulness. Thankfulness. Yeah, you respond in gratitude. Yeah. Um, God had... It's, it's almost a sign that your sins have been forgiven because you have the opportunity to give to him the first fruits of the blessings he's given you. So it's thankfulness and um, um, it's a sign that you have been accepted. Your worship has been accepted by God. Um, he actually, in a sense, the grain offering you offer to him in symbolically, God eats the grain offering. So there's like this fellowship between you and God. Uh, the peace offering. Uh, the peace offering is an optional offering. Um, it's usually a uh, peace offering is closed with a meal uh, w- in which the priest representing God and the worshiper and his friends ate together. So in the peace offering, you actually offer the, the, the sacrifice and then you get to eat it in the presence of God, which I think symbolizes a lot what's going on in, in communion. Uh, the, the peace offering also would have a wave offering to it where the priest would take his portion, he would wave it before the Lord, signifying that this is truly belongs to you, and then they would be able to partake of it as well. Um, then there's the purification offering or the sin offering. Um, and that deals with uh, just purifying from either an unintentional sin uh, or some sort of uncleanliness that's gone on, and that would relate to this very well. And then there's a guilt offering or a reparation offering, and that's one where you you like add something to it. You've done something wrong, and you're you're actually uh, kind of repairing the wrong that's done. So all those are part of these offerings. Um, the only one that's not here is the the guilt offering, um, which would make sense because you're not, you've taken a vow. It's not, you're not, you're not stopping this because you've done something wrong. You've had a higher level of dedication, so it's not there. So, yeah. Who decides how long the vow lasts? The worshiper. Okay. He, this is all, this is all voluntary. Is said to the priest, so somebody knows and holds them like, or it's just. Well, I, it's funny because Paul seems to take one of these vows and I'm not sure, he, I think he wants to time it with maybe the Day of Atonement or something. Like he wants to get back for this specific time. Uh, but 
I, I, there's nothing that says that there's a specific time. You must just tell the priest, and now you're done with it. So mm-hmm. they probably would record when it started. Um, so. Hmm. Questions before I try to draw some connections to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. That um, they would they divide um, offerings into two categories: offerings that that resulted in a pleasing aroma, and those that didn't result in a pleasing aroma. But but that's the whole idea that God accepts you. <sighs> you know that that great feeling that that God is pleased with you. So. Um, I wonder, and again, it's not stated, but I wonder if in Matthew 26, when Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my father's kingdom, if that is a uh, sort of Nazarite vow. It would then make sense that when they offer him wine on the cross, why he doesn't want that. And then why, after he says it is finished, uh, when he's fulfilled all righteousness, that he does accept vinegar to drink at the very end. So, um, again, those are just me musing. I don't, I don't know that that's exactly what's going on, but it does seem all those are in Matthew. Um, so... You can turn there, Matthew 27. I mean, there's, I I just haven't had enough time to think through it all in great detail. Obviously, all of the, somehow the Nazarite vow has to point to Christ. There's, in my opinion, it just has to. But I don't know if this is the correct application of that or not. But in Matthew 27, 33 and 34, he says, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Okay? Um, but then down in verse 46, uh, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One, one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink. But others said, uh, wait, let him see, uh, see if Elijah will come and, and save him, and he yields up his spirit. In, in, it, so it's not real clear in that Matthew, but if you go to John chapter 19, 28 to 30, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said it was finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So John seems to, again, John is much more connected with the kind of priestly understanding of things. John really wants to make a difference between when Jesus says, no, I can't even touch it, 
to the point where he says, okay, give me some wine. You know, let me taste it on the cross. So um, I don't know, uh, but he certainly was the perfect Nazarite. He completely dedicates himself to the Lord. Uh, but then he breaks all kinds of Nazarite vows, right? Touching the dead, you know, <laughs> um, all the things that you would not think would be appropriate uh, for a Nazarite as well. And maybe he just takes that vow at the very end. I, I don't know. It is, uh, it's very interesting. So any comments or questions on the Nazarite vow? Uh, it seems to me like it's a very unfinished study, that there should be much more to talk about with the Nazarite vow. <laughs> No thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, but that's a different, that's actually talking about like as a, um, the, the hair was given as a sign of a covering and to her glory. I mean, there's a lot of, but this would be like a special act for a temporal time, so it wouldn't have been something that you would just do permanently, Um, and so I, again, it does help us to understand to not take one statement of scripture and just like, that's everything, that's no, you can't ever change, or because it does seem in this passage that, that if a woman took a Nazarite vow and was then contaminated with a dead body, that she would then, as a part of that, have to, by the law, shave her head. So, um, so you just have to, it's a good question. And that, that's, I think the more that you understand scripture and the more that you can like remember one passage of scripture when you're studying another passage of scripture, that's very helpful as a Christian. God wants you to do that. He doesn't want you to just be locked into this one and forget everything else that you've read. And so, um, yeah, um, go ahead more. Israelites wants to marry one of the captured women, they have to shave their hair and pair mm-hmm. their nails. Is that sort Yeah, of and I think, I think what's similar to that is that the, it is a sign of cleansing. Um, it could also be a sign of shame in, in situations, so, uh, but it is a sign of cleansing, yeah. Part of the ritual of cleansing. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's okay that we don't have it all figured out. And as, as we, you know, if you ponder this and keep thinking about the Nazarite vow, you could, theoretically, you could, you could potentially, hey, what about this? And, and you could, you could uh, maybe even if you were a theologian, you'd maybe write an article on it, and then you'd have other theologians like, nah, that doesn't meet up with Scripture, and they could, you know. And we might actually move forward in our understanding of the Nazarite vow. I don't think that's... Um, out of the question. I mean, it happens a lot as we've studied scripture over the years. So, but it's certainly one that hasn't been fully developed in my mind. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, is it uh, something that is taught? I mean, or 
encouraged for New Testament believers like fasting at certain times or it's a... No, remember that like, okay, that's a great question because all of the ceremonial aspects of this are just wiped away, right? But what you can, and that's why I want to stress at the beginning that like having a desire to be uh, like more devoted to God is a, is a, um, I think that's ground into it. That's something that would apply in the New Testament as well, right? Um, and, and that's not a bad thing. If you wanted to say, oh, I want to, I want to get away for a week and just study scripture and be with God and, you know, like do something above and beyond your normal uh, walking with God. I think that's not a bad thing, right? Um, to to hyper set yourself apart from, uh, from the rest of the, the world or your rest of your life. In some ways, I think the Sabbath itself is to be a sort of special set, set apart separation because it is a day of holiness and set apart. And so... Um, God approves that. Uh, he wants you to do that. He uh, doesn't necessarily want you to do all the ceremonial aspects of it, to be worried about touching a dead body, you know, but he does this idea of pulling aside to offer devotion to God is a good thing. So. Yeah. Um, no, I'm just trying to... <laughs> I've never been real comfortable with Lent. So, uh, um, yes, it can be, you know, uh, a time of refocus maybe and, and setting apart to to God, I think, could be a true. But um, then you have to, it's all mixed in with uh, kind of a lot of false Catholic theology that can get mixed in all that too. So you have to be careful. But, but again... Uh, at a minimum, you as an individual, you want to. You don't have to necessarily become a pastor. You know, set apart. You know, you're you're a pastor or you're an elder. You know, but you can still, as an individual, know that you are a holy people and that God wants you to to do things to express your devotion to Him uh, through Christ, not just your own. You know, you're not coming to Him on your own. You still. The person with dedication still had to use these burnt offerings and stuff. We still, my dedication is not why God accepts me. I mean, you, all those kind of things are built into this as well. Um, but, a, but an expression of devotion is a good thing. So, hope I'm trying to answer these questions. I feel very inadequate on this. So, okay. Um, uh, Last thing I'll say is Jesus conquers death. He overcomes the curse. So all this connection of the Nazarite vow to dead would no longer apply since he has conquered death. All right, back in number 6, 22 to 27. You guys should all know this. I find it very, very um, uh, wonderful that God puts his blessing, the high priestly blessing in the book of Numbers. Isn't that interesting? You know, all these other things going on, and we don't even go, who Numbers, you know? And you would think this could be in Exodus or Genesis or something like that that people read more, but it's in the book of, of Numbers. So, Nazarite vow to that. Oh, and then if you go to the next thing, the offerings of the consecration, it's like, would they just plop this in the middle here, or like, what happened? Uh, <laughs> on this, so plopped right in the middle. So, um, 
Jim, do you have that? You want to read that blessing for us? 22. Yeah, through the end of the, yeah. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Okay, so first thing to notice is that uh, the statement, the Lord, how many times is it used? Three. Three. Okay, someone said four. Uh, what's that? Yeah, 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 the actual blessing itself. Yeah, there's three times in the blessing. Uh, why would there be three times? Trinity. The Trinity. Uh, that's uh, as, as New Testament Christians. That's what we always go to, and it's the right thing to do. Uh, but if you were a Jew, you wouldn't naturally think Trinity, right? Holy, holy, holy. There you go. Holy, holy, holy. It's like blessed, 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 right? If if Isaiah, holy, 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 this is blessed, blessed, blessed. Right, so it's it's a superlative. Um, Genesis twelve is the blessing that we've been talking about to Abraham. I will bless you, da da da, and here the blessing, the blessing, the blessing, right? Three times. <clears throat> Psalm sixty-seven. Let's turn there for a moment. Psalm sixty-seven. Verse 1, may God be gracious to us and bless us and do what? Okay, that, and every, every Israelite would have known exactly, oh, this is the high priestly blessing, right? So you're singing your song and you're saying, God, I just want your face to shine upon me uh, like the sun rising up. Anybody see the sunrise this morning? It was, aw- it was awesome today. Man, so colorful and beautiful. Um, Uh, Psalm 80, verse 19, you don't have to turn there if you don't want, but same thing, restore us, O, God, o Lord. Like, you know, we've, we've sinned, things have been bad. Lord, a God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Um, so uh, having God's face to shine upon you, what does it mean for the Lord to lift up his countenance upon you? What does that mean? Turn his face to you. Another kind of reference, his countenance, his face towards you. What, is, what does that practically mean for us? Yeah. Think about like um, if you're at odds with someone or you're a child with their parents and, and you've done something wrong and the kid's like not, you know, the dad's angry, kids are ashamed, you know, whatever. And the idea of, ah. His face is upon you, and there's, there's reunification of the, the joy and the pleasure of the relationship happening between them. Uh, one commentator said, The majestic smile of God upon the community of faith and each constituent individual will bring abiding and ultimate peace. Um, 
course, in John 14, 27, Jesus says, My peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's not comforting words of Christ, but that's he's basically just telling them, I am God, and as God says that let his face shine upon you, my peace is shining upon you. You, know, you could take someone to this passage, John 14, 27, and go to the Numbers passage, and you could make a case that Jesus is declaring himself to be Yahweh. Do you see that? Because in, in the, the high priestly blessing, only God can make his face to shine upon you. He, only he can give you that kind of, that's what you yearn for. And Jesus just says, oh yeah, my peace. It's my peace I'm giving to you. And just, just how, um, I know in seminary when I started seeing passages like this, I was very, um, it just was good. Because you'd always, you'd always have these verses that seemed to declare that Jesus was God. And then someone would come in and try to like, like work it away and say, no, that's not really what he meant, and da 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 But if you look at passages like this, it's just written into the fabric. It's like, it's, I am God. My peace is what matters. And he could only say that if he were God himself. Like if I said to you, Gary, my peace is with you, you'd be like, who cares? Yeah, I don't care if your peace is with me, you know, but if I'm God and I tell you my peace is with you, then that's what's being said in this passage. So, um so anyway, the wonderful promises. It's <clears throat> the reason why I think this high priestly blessing is put in this place is because if you look at the book of Numbers, um, it is one instance of grumbling after another, and God's anger. <laughs> over his people as they grumble. That's like the rest of the book of Numbers. So to have this statement of peace at the beginning is very helpful, and it still governs this, this struggle with grumbling and, and, and uh, peace that's going on. So it creates this tension. So you can imagine if you only taught the, high, the priestly blessing and you didn't actually read the rest of Numbers, you would think, oh, your disobedience never matters. You never make God angry. He's just happy with you. And that's not... That's not clear. That's not what Scripture teaches. So, uh, but it is very appropriate at a place where people grumble and feel the anger of God, and they keep crying out to God for for restoration. That you would have this abiding peace that is continually being pronounced over the people of God. Uh, what's the final statement in Numbers uh, after the? It's like an editorial comment. It's not actually in the blessing. I don't always do it when I do the blessing, uh, but sometimes I do. Uh, verse 27, what, what's happening there? Yes. And what? Kind of theologize for me a moment. Try to like tell me what does it mean that God places his name upon his people? Okay, so they... So they belong to God. I don't know if uh, he claims them as his own. Okay. Okay, so there's obligations because of that. 
So it's adoption. Yeah, so Lord. Yeah, it absolutely is covenantal. Yes, excellent. Uh, and covenant promises. So in our sermon today, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Can you understand how the name, these, this kind of concept that, that his name is on you. So now if he were to deny you, then he would be denying himself. That's the, that's the idea. Um, So you have, in, in most things, you have, any, with any kind of what I call a sacramental action, we're going to do that with baptism this morning. So any kind of sacramental action, obviously the priest doesn't have like this like superstitious power to be able to magically put blessing on people, right? I mean, that's not... But because God has commanded this to be happening, and he is trying to faithfully follow that, and the people are, are trying to faithfully submit up underneath that and believe it, when the priest actually gives the blessing, something occurs. Does that make sense? That's what you're, it's not like, it's not magical, it's, it's just, it's basically you just saying, I'm going to do what God told me to do, and, and, and he does it. So that's what we think about with sacramental actions. They are, they are signs the priest, his blessing is a sign of blessing. Who's the one that can really bless you? I would say Jesus. <laughs> you know, he's the only one that can truly bless people that are in him. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, my peace I give to you, right? He's actually doing the reality. But this sacramental action is there. The priest has been given that authority. Nobody else could do that. He was called to do this so that it was a pronouncement to them so that they would be reminded that that's what they need. They need God's name upon themselves. They need to be united with God such that they can receive this blessing. So, and I think that's a lot what we do at the end of our service when we pronounce the blessing. It is a reminder to you who have seen the Messiah come. You, Jesus has come. He has taken the curse away from you. He has done everything to fulfill your salvation. And he's putting his name upon you and therefore, you are now under his blessing. So, uh, all of that, if you deny him, if you walk away from him, if you just don't care about this, uh, he will deny you. <laughs> I mean, that's in the, the saying that we'll look at today as well. But it's, it's a real action, and it's something that he, he's trying to instruct his people in a reality. They do not get, right off the bat, how much God cares about them and how much he has brought them into a, a union with himself. I just don't think they have any clue on how powerful and wonderful this is. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. You want to read it? Yep. Yeah, please do. It's too good. 
<laughs> Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And, of course, then it's all the I wills. I will do this, 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 and this. And anyway, it's for his holy name. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it. Amazing. That's right. Um, and even in judgment, uh, when, when you are, the, the greatest sin, the how sin occurs among God's covenant people, is they must first forsake God as the fountain of all blessing, and then go and seek blessing apart from him. This is what we do when we sin. This is, you know, I... I you know, we're all guilty of this. <laughs> we, 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 we fail to trust that, God, you've promised all blessing. I have nothing to fear. Even in death, I will be blessed. There's nothing that can prevent the separation of me and your blessing. And so, therefore, I trust you. No, what we do is say, oh, but what about? And then we say, but I've got to do this in order to make sure I take care of myself. And therefore, we, we bring curses upon us. So turn to Jeremiah 2.13. Because this is uh, the Jeremiah's estimation of what God's people have done. Jeremiah 2.13. He says, well, I'll start with 12 so you can see this. He's, he, oh, wait a minute, I'll keep going back. Um, verse 9. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. I've got a bone to pick with you guys. The cross of the coast of Cyprus, uh, for, for cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. There's no other nation does what you guys have done. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory or for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. For my people have committed two, two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's a good description of every time we sin. We say, you're not the fountain of living waters anymore. You know, we don't, we don't, Put it in those words, but that's what we're doing. <laughs> and then we come over and say, oh, let me develop my own cistern so I can take care of my own life and make life better for me. And so then we are denied, and that's what God says is happening. Um, but the, the, the solution is never oh, now I am going to turn my life around and make myself uh, perfect, and therefore, because of my faithfulness, I will gain the blessing. Works righteousness. It is a recasting yourself upon the promise. It's a return to, oh, yeah, you are my fountain of blessing. 
which is why I think the high priestly blessing is so important because if you're seeing punishment and grumbling and need of repentance, what do they need to return to? Not to works righteousness, get yourself all fixed. Back to the promise. Back to this, God has put his name upon, oh yeah, I'm returning to the fountain of all blessing. You are my Lord and I'm trusting in you and that's where I find my blessing. And we would do this by returning to Christ. Right? This is what you do on a regular basis. When you come to communion, you confess your sins to God. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness and to renew the blessing upon you as we continually come to him uh, in repentance. So I would say that the Old Testament is set up as a pattern to help us understand that we live by grace and faith and not by works. And this is put into it even before you get to like uh, Deuteronomy and and, uh, the kings and all the troubles that go on in Israel. God wants this to be right at the beginning to understand uh, his name is placed upon them and that's where they find true blessing. Yeah. That's right. Yep. And the only qualification I would tell us uh, today is that it's not just the physical land. Just keep remembering it is the new heavens, new earth, because Jesus told us when he was talking to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If you thought it was, if he thought it was of this world, he, Pilate would be out, Jesus would set up his kingdom, he would have perfect obedience in his kingdom, all those kind of things would happen. So, uh, but yes, from our perspective, we still want to cry out to him and get repentance because that's the path by which the blessing of God is on us. Just walking with God in repentance, trusting in him. His face is shining upon us, even in the midst of great suffering. That's the challenging thing for us, because um, uh, we want it to just be now. (laughs) We don't want Ed to be in in the hospital with with lymphoma. We want him to just be healed now. uh, But it's not, not it. We're dying to ourselves, hopefully. All right, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this class, and I pray that you would help us to keep learning from the book of Numbers. Uh, And Lord, thank you for putting your name upon us. We do not deserve it. Our hope is in Christ and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.